Hello listeners, it's been a busy year in vaccine news. Since the FDA authorized the first COVID-19 vaccine in the U.S. on December 11th, the vaccination campaign has been underway and gaining fervor by the week. The FDA just passed the Johnson & Johnson vaccine on February 27th, which is the first single-dose COVID-19 vaccine. As of March 7th, 17% of the U.S. population has gotten at least one dose of the new COVID vaccine. All these COVID vaccines have one thing in common. They are all RNA vaccines. Some people might wonder, what exactly is RNA? RNA carries out vital cellular functions, mainly in genetic information messaging and transfer. RNA helps to bridge the gap between information stored in DNA to creating proteins that carry out functions of life. Interestingly, some scientists actually believe RNA is how life on this planet started. Today, we are going to talk about the RNA world hypothesis. So what exactly is the RNA world hypothesis? It's an idea first indirectly proposed by Alexander Rich in 1962 when he explained that RNA can act both as a genetic information carrier and as a catalyst. In 1986, this hypothesis was officially named and explained by Walter Gilbert, first mentioning RNA world, meaning a world where RNA was the only sign of life. Gilbert explains how RNA started everything with its self-replicating properties. As evolution took course after the RNA world, there were some reactions where proteins were able to outperform RNA and DNA replaced RNA as a more stable and error checking system to store information, with RNA still holding some significant roles. As is in the name, this is only a hypothesis, but the idea still holds some merit as RNA can perform functions that can create and propagate life. There is, however, an argument against the idea as a viable start to life. The RNA world hypothesis does not offer a clear continuous path for evolution as there are still gaps in the initial RNA synthesis and evolution to produce proteins and DNA. We have two great guests today that are experts in the field. We are going to get some great views from both sides of the debate. One guest is a strong supporter and the other does not buy into these ideas. Our first guest is Dr. Augie Kodon, who is going to bring some insight into the hypothesis. How are you doing, Augie? Hello, Scott. I'm as well as can be expected after a weekend of napping at the desk. It is a pleasure to be here. That's great. So why do you think RNA predates proteins? Well, British chemist Leslie Orgel 1968 paper discussed both scenarios. What would a protein first versus a nucleic acid first world look like? In the absence of sophisticated machinery, macromolecule synthesis becomes a product of statistics and probabilities. Which amino acids happen to bump into one another and form structurally stable chains? This issue is lessened in nucleic acids where the backbone of sugar phosphates is the same regardless of base identity. Amino acids really fall short in comparison to nucleic acids when it comes to replication, since nucleic acids can serve as their own template due to the mechanism of complementary base pairing. So we know that proteins are the key actors in just about every biological process. How could RNA sustain life if it's simply a storage molecule? Well, like you said, it has been discovered that RNA's ability to act as both a storage of information and as a catalyst um, is the foundation of the RNA world hypothesis. 1989 Nobel laureates Thomas Cech and Sidney Altman coined the term ribozymes, 
um, they discovered that RNA chains can fold into complexes and loops um, to function as biological catalysts, something we formerly associated exclusively with proteins. Mm, Altman's lab studied ribonuclease P, a ribozyme that cleaves the five prime end of pre-tRNA during tRNA biosynthesis. And under standard conditions, both the RNA and protein moieties of this enzyme are necessary to perform the catalytic function. But the lab discovered that if supplied with high concentrations of magnesium cations, the RNA moiety alone is sufficient. This reminiscent of Francis Crick's prediction in 1968 that a mineral might serve as a natural catalyst for random nucleotide polymerization, which would have allowed RNA to be synthesized in many locations on Earth over a long period of time to generate a substantial number of different sequences. Czech's lab, in turn, studied how a pre-ribosomal RNA can splice itself or by recognizing purine-rich sequences in its exons. That is fascinating. So do ribosomes still play a significant role today, where we are clearly no longer in the RNA world? That's a great question, Scott. The translation of mRNA chains into polypeptides is carried out by one of the most important ribosomes we know of, the ribosome. Um, the ribosome is composed of ribosomal RNA and small proteins and was first imaged by the lab of American biochemist Thomas Stites in the year 2000. Imaging revealed that the active site of the ribosome, which is located in the larger subunit and catalyzes peptide bond formation between successive amino acids, is composed completely of RNA. There are no protein residues within 18 angstroms of the forming peptide bond. Now, the mechanism of peptide bond formation in the ribosome is a nucleophilic attack by the A position amine on the P position carboxyl. The authors found that certain nitrogen atoms of nearby RNA bases can act as general bases or proton acceptors who can facilitate nucleophilic attack. Specifically, the N3 of adenosine 2451 in E. coli is the only titratable base within five angstroms of the relevant amine and carboxyl groups once they are positioned in the active site. And remarkably, the PAKA of N3, which is typically 1.5, has to be raise to be that like closer to um, histidine, which is well over six to act as a base. And this five unit increase in PKA is in part brought about by the phosphate group of neighboring um, adenosines, whose negative charge stabilizes the protonated form of the cyclic amine, much in the same way that aspartate's carboxyl stabilizes histidine in serine proteases. And this demonstrates that the ribosome is a ribozyme. And Francis Crick even theorized back in 1968 that the primitive ribozyme may have once been composed entirely of RNA. That was awesome. Thanks for coming on, Augie, and providing that deep insight into this hypothesis. We are now going to welcome our next guest, Dr. Arna Ray, who will address some opposing points. Hi, Arna, how are you doing today? I've been better, but only because I just got my second vaccination today, which makes for a very relevant RNA-centered conversation. That's great. Uh, so earlier we alluded to uh, some of the downfalls in the RNA world hypothesis. One of the most prominent seems to be the issue of continuity of evolution. A transition from a purely RNA-based world to organisms containing complex machinery cannot be easily explained. What is your take on the discontinuity of this evolutionary dilemma? Well, as a hypothesis that attempts to solve one of the biggest predicaments of life itself, and one that is working against approximately 4 million years of evolution, 
there are inherent complications and gaps associated with this hypothesis. The RNA world hypothesis is appealing in the fact that it addresses the paradoxical conflict of protein DNA codependency, but questions arise when considering the practicality of RNA synthesis and self-replication from the simplest of precursors. For one, RNA is a very complex molecule, difficult to produce even in the test tube present day, let alone in a time period where close to nothing existed to act as precursors. The availability of the four nucleotides, each with different nitrogen-containing rings attached to alternating phosphate and ribose groups of a specific linkage, takes priority when considering the need to replicate. This is one area where the story remains incomplete, as synthesis and adjoinment of these compounds require temporarily separated reactions with sufficient concentrations of the correct reactants. The lack of synthetic organization that likely existed in the prebiotic world suggests that these reactions would have been disrupted by the presence of other closely related compounds and wouldn't necessarily have chiral specific capabilities to pr produce the D-ribose sugar that exists in modern day RNA. As the precursor to biology today, RNA would have to have withstood extreme conditions, whether that be very acidic or very hot, for example. Do you see this as a problem for long-term stability of the molecule? Well, experiments have shown that at higher temperatures, RNA is particularly labile and functions optimally at cold temperatures. But at these cold temperatures, RNA is more likely to intermolecularly base pair and form complexes that would reduce its catalytic activity. At a high pH, on the other hand, RNA can be vulnerable to base catalyzed hydrolysis. So a moderately low pH would be necessary for RNA to persist. Interestingly, a proposed energy source for RNA synthesis and replication is a use of proton and thermal gradients, such as alkaline undersea hydrothermal vents and cold acidic ocean water. But it does seem difficult to take advantage of some physical properties while maintaining others that are necessary for the stability of this molecule. We've been talking a lot about how evolution ties into this hypothesis, and I think an important distinction we should make here is the difference between chemical and biological evolution. We're all familiar with biological evolution through reproduction. However, chemical evolution is less talked about. Chemical evolution is the formation of complex organic molecules from simpler inorganic molecules, then the organization of these organic molecules into complex systems. What is your take on early chemical evolution, mainly the appearance of RNA in relation to the other biological molecules? Great question. So concerns arise when considering the time frame of RNA and the ribosome. To reference Jessica Bowman and others in their article challenging the RNA world hypothesis in the context of the ribosome, the nature of the primitive core of the ribosome, as we know its structure and function, cannot be reconciled with its origins in the context of a functioning enzymatic milieu. This, is pr this primitive core is often referred to as the peptidyl transferase center, and part of the hypothesis is that it develops simultaneously to other complex ribozymes, such as ribozyme polymerase. However, the peptidyl transferase center exhibits a mechanism and symmetrical structure that is an outlier in the category of biological enzymes and instead suggests origins in the chemical evolutionary phase. For chemical evolution, replication would not have been enzymatic template directed and instead dependent on geophysical properties as mentioned earlier. Therefore, this catalytic center does not seem to exhibit the necessary enzymatic power and sophistication of ribozymes, Q 
capable of both self-replicating and transducing energy. So it may not have been functioned as an enzyme in the way that is sometimes attributed to be in the RNA world hypothesis. This finding suggests that there are indeed some errors in the temporal outline of the RNA world hypothesis. So it's obvious you're not a fan of the RNA world hypothesis, and you've been great explaining some of the issues with this idea. Do you have any compelling alternatives for how life got us start? Well, not to add another player into this debacle, but the study of molecules called enzymes have shown unique perspectives to the history of proteins in RNA. Enzymes are derived from invariant protein cores, derivatives of modern day enzymes that are reduced to around at least half the size and are missing entire domains of genetic info. This ideally would characterize a remote ancestor of the enzyme. One experiment conducted by Lee Lee and colleagues analyzes enzymes of class one and class two amino acyl tRNA synthetases and find that they are able to isolate tRNA much faster than the uncatalyzed formation of peptide bonds from activated amino acids in the absence of the ribosome. This is profound due to the fact that these enzymes lack the anti-codon domain and instead show isolation of the corresponding TNA through an operational RNA code that targets the bases on the three prime stem of the tRNA. In tracing the catalytic activities of the enzymes, they suggest a higher probability that the prebiotic world consisted of pro RNA protein coevolution. One, because of the lack of ribosome catalyzed tRNA isolation in the RNA world hypothesis where the postulation of the original ribosomes, ribosome's ability to decode is hypothetical, and two, the necessity for the ribosome to be able to accurately replicate early on has high complexity and high fidelity. These enzymes are linked by ancestral sense-antisense genetic coding and have advanced catalytic repertoires, posing as a solution to the, these two problems when considering pro, prior protein tRNA evolution. Nonetheless, the RNA world hypothesis offers great insights to how this dynamic world came to be, and I look forward to upcoming research in this field. Thank you so much for having me today. That's great. Thank you for coming on. So now that we've laid down the foundation, it's up to the listener to decide which side of the argument is more compelling. Either way, it has been great to look into this topic on RNA. It's such an important biomolecule for life, important today in COVID and virus news, and may have even been the start to life. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week on an episode you cannot miss. We are actually interviewing RNA with the recent invention of a microscopic microphone.